It be too late to alter course, matey. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove. And mark well me words, matey. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis from scottartis.com. And I'm Heather Artis from blackpearlminute.com. Thanks for joining us for Minute 110 of The Curse of the Black Pearl. Woohoo! Oh, I thought we were celebrating every even number. No, we're not celebrating every even number. Every 10? Not every 10 either. I must have got a little confused. No, only 1 in 100. That's basically it. Oh, okay. What about the final minute? Well, that's what I'm saying. Kind of the final minute we can celebrate. Okay, okay. so are you happy now? 1 100 final minute there. That's written in stone now. I also want to throw a shout out again to Norman and Cassandra from Dueling Genres, the Lord of the Rings Minute, for joining us for the last three days this week. We had a great time discussing Curse of the Black Pearl and getting some new perspectives on the film. Probably my biggest takeaway was something Norman said regarding the iconic skeleton underwater scene. He characterized it as Peter Jackson's rage. Now that sounds like one hell of a hip band name if you ask me. (laughs) What are you doing tonight? Well, I'm headed over to the microbrew and I'm going to catch Peter Jackson's rage. Come on, that is totally an up-and-coming group if you just think about it. Yeah, it is actually, yeah. You could do all kinds of cool stuff with a screen in the background, have Lord of the Rings stuff, Hobbit action, (laughs) Peter Jackson's rage. You know that is. That's just awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So when somebody does actually create a band, Peter Jackson's rage, I expect a couple of free tickets and a beer. (laughs) Just one? That's it. Okay. And if you hit it really big, send me an autographed copy of the first album. There you go. As we throw back some beverages, listening to a disgruntled Jackson complain about his reduced zombie army, there's always that feeling like we can relax again and get back into our bad habits. We try to maintain a modicum of decorum, usually, when we have guests on the show, but when the house is empty, we can actually settle back into routine. So the house starts a rocket? doesn't start a rocket. Oh! What the hell is going on there? So for all of you who are wondering, not that... Where the euphemisms went? Well, I guess that's where it is. The answer is nowhere. They just had a few days out of the office, so everyone would appreciate them more when they came back. And Heather's already jumping into it. Although that wasn't really a euphemism. That was no. just a bold face. No, I was talking about music. Like Really? Dropping. Oh, yeah. That's what everybody what? thought out there. <laughs> Your mind went dirty. Mine went music-wise. We're just talking about a band. Okay. Yeah. I get it now. That's usually what they mean when they say, this van's a rockin', don't come a-knockin'. It was a house, though. Come on, it's the same play on the thing there. No, I meant music, actually. Well, you need to specify that. (laughs) On that note, and of course we're rockin' to Peter Jackson's rage, (laughs) let's get to the ins and outs of those wet bones in today's episode. In the previous minute, it went a little something like this. So Barbosa took a big chance with a treasure cave stance with Pentel and Rigetti who were ready to play... Was it Norrington they were fooling because he knew what he was doing, taught them how to walk underwater this way? He told them to walk this way, walk this way. Uh, Just give me a cut list, never mind. 
I'll, I can't even do that anymore. Okay. <laughs> I was going to start clapping. <laughs> clapping. Yeah. Dancing. Okay, you could dance. See, more music. Okay, more music. This is the music episode. Minute 110, actually, if we can get back to where we are going, begins with, Kohler's got a gun. Kohler's got a gun. Their whole world's come undone. From looking at the moon. What did the Aztecs do? What did they put them through? Okay, that's it. Whew. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> you just got carried away. I did. What I really meant to say, minute 110 begins with a close-up of Kohler. Bosun and Twig following just behind in the process of transitioning to their skeletal form after passing under the HMS Dauntless and emerging back into the moonlight. That, that, Pintel looks like a lady. That, that, <laughs> Rigetti looks like a lady. Row out in front of Norrington and his men who raise, cock, and aim their muskets. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Dude looks like a lady. <laughs> <laughs> Norrington tells his men to hold fire. The minute ends with Governor Swan talking to Elizabeth from outside the closed doors of the captain's quarters. Couldn't be more proud of you. But you know, even a good decision, if made for the wrong reasons, can be a wrong decision. We cut to Twig's head, just about to pop up from the side of the Dauntless. Well, since we already just pointed out the two dudes in this particular minute, why don't we just start with Pintel and Rigetti? Because we do get the punchline to Bosun's joke on Pintel and Rigetti in this particular minute. When they are, well, let's just say used as a distraction. He really did get some joy out of sending these two out in the boat wearing dresses. Yeah. It was all in, we just saw it in the previous minute. He was just really like, okay, finally I'm getting something over on these guys. Besides sending them strapped to a cannon to the bottom of the ocean. It's like, how do you get back at an immortal pirate? Well, you humiliate them. Or just one of them. Or just one of them. Well, Rigetti doesn't seem all that humiliated. Humiliated. <laughs> <laughs> whatever he doesn't i mean it is <laughs> he totally threw me off this is like a perfect opportunity to let a bit of frustration out for bosun it's like he's trying to keep these two in task all the time maybe they need to be well that's what i'm saying what actually i find funnier about this whole obvious gag here are their reactions rigetti is giddy pintel is annoyed since poor rigetti is not necessarily playing with a full deck I think in some way he takes this as an honor, actually. Yeah. Do you think he takes it as an honor? He is doing this as like part of, for the good of the crew. He has like this special part to play in the success of their plan. Even he likens themselves to the Greeks hiding in the Trojan horse. It's like he's making this sacrifice as a true pirate warrior going on here. <laughs> At least in his own mind. Plus he just likes to be dressed up. <laughs> He likes the parasols. He likes to He's twirl them. He's fanning himself. Yeah. <laughs> he is. This is what he likes to do. This is his spare time. The cap to the moment is when he finds the need to clarify what he meant when he said they hid in a horse. He says a few moments later, a wooden horse. So he actually has to clarify that. He wants to make sure Pintel knows that they didn't actually hide in a real horse. Well, that's what I'm thinking, too. It's this classic Abbott and Costello trope. And I guess he didn't want to be hit, say, with Pintel's hat, if you will. Or yelled at for not saying a wooden horse. He wants to avoid the whole beatdown by admitting that he actually knows that it was a wooden horse. And not a real horse. Because you can just picture, say, Abbott and Costello. Because I know everybody out there in this audience is watching Abbott and Costello on a regular basis. I Abbott and Costello are. Are you kidding me? You don't know who they are? No. You're I've lying. I've never seen Abbott and Costello. 
You you would know them if you saw them, right? No. You're lying. How would I have seen them? I don't know. It was your day? No. You cougar? Ah! No. You've never seen Abbott and Costello? No. I'm going to insert crickets there and I'm going to... I can't even... I don't even know where to go from that. Abbott and Costello. Bud Abbott, Lou Costello. You'd know him if you saw him. I'm going to... Oh my God. <laughs> I don't even know what to say after that. Anyways, now I have to kind of explain this. Costello is the funny man. Abbott is the straight man. And Costello would have gone into how did they all fit into this horse. So if that was something that said, like, how did they all fit into the horse? That'd be something kind of he said. And Abbott would have made fun of him, hit him with his hat or saying, you're an idiot or something like that. So Rigetti sidelines the conversation by clarifying what he actually meant. And with that, nothing kills a joke more than analyzing it. <laughs> and nothing kills a joke even further than that is not even knowing who Abbott and Costello are. That just blows my mind. I know who they are. You lie. Yeah, I was just giving her. I don't think you do. We'll have to look that up later so I can show you a picture of them. I know who they are. I mean, you may not have seen some of their stuff, but I hope you've at least run across their names or seen pictures of them before. Yes. Just giving you a hard time. Uh Uh-huh. But what's really going on here, this is actually Governor Swan's minute to shine, I think. He can't help but admit he is proud of Elizabeth for making a wise decision with accepting Norrington's proposal. But like Norrington... He's not an idiot and realizes her heart does belong to another. And I think this revelation is interesting because on one hand, he is telling her moving forward with this marriage is a good idea. And she will grow to be happy with her status in life and maybe married to Norrington. At the same time, he is also giving his blessing to pull the plug on the whole thing and follow her heart. Take the path that may in fact lead to true love and happiness. It's like forget all that class stuff. It's a grand character arc for Governor Swan. That probably came about because his life was turned upside down all of a sudden. Elizabeth was almost taken away from him and that has given him time to reflect on this whole situation. It's like he would rather have her in his life happy and married to a blacksmith than not in his life at all or in his life and maybe not happy now. I'm thinking he kind of knows his daughter. He really knows her knows how she is. And he knows that she's not going to be happy if... She actually loves somebody else and marries Norrington, you know? And he's really showing he's can handle her not getting married to Norrington. It's really growing here. That's what I'm saying. It's like this grand character arc for him. Yeah. We really see him shine in this moment. He goes from that... Well, he goes from being a straight-up governor to actually being her caring father. Right. That line that he says is actually something we should all live by. It's that idea that sometimes you have to take a risk because you just may regret it later on or not be happy with it. And I'm personally glad I did so. So we only get one turn on this planet, and I don't want to say, why didn't I, when I could easily say, I'm glad I did it, or at least I tried to do it. And that's what I think he's finally telling her. He's giving her a bit of that fatherly advice and that wisdom. Like, you can be happy. I know you're maybe doing this just for me or to save Will, but you can actually follow your own path. You do not have to listen to me. Yeah. I'm offering advice that this would be a good life choice for you. Uphold your class status, give you security. But yeah, it's it's something that he knows that her heart is not in it. And with her personality, she's just the type to run off an adventure. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) poor Norrington is left holding the bag. I don't think she would actually leave him, but in her mind, she wouldn't be there. 
No, she wouldn't at all. Yeah, so it's just a mental thing. He knows that mentally she would need that escape, and that wouldn't be something that she would want to do. So he's now offering her an out should she choose to accept it. Governor Swan has definitely had that great character arc and grown as a character that we finally see in this particular minute. He has really, like I said, gone from that governor person in charge to actually being a caring father that's going to try and look out for her. Not just look out for her best interests is what he's been doing, because I'm not going to say he wasn't a good father or bad father but now he's looking out for what he sees as her character in her best interest kind of a meshing of what is her best interest and what is going to work well for her yeah so there we go so what do you think about these skeletons and climbing up the ropes it's amazing you did that would you look at my notes and saw skeletons on my thing to talk about the skeletons no what do you mean how with your evil eyes i got my own notes here and i see do they say my name on it nope So you actually have your own notes, okay? Yeah, I think Industrial Light Magic really does deliver great effects, just in general, across the board in this movie. We talked earlier this week about the close-ups of the Cursed Skeleton crew holding up. Definitely that has weakened over the years with technology now that we see. I mean, it really is approaching 15 years old, for crying out loud. But the wide shots, I think, still work. And that's what we talked about with Norman and Cassandra. When you see it from a distance or these wide-angle shots, nothing close up... You do get, okay, that really looks good. Like when they're first get in the water. Yeah. And they're kind of showing the whole crew walking along the bottom. That's right. In fact, the underwater sequence where they're climbing the anchor ropes is blended very well, I thought. And I think that maybe holds up and matches more because I think that entire scene is animated. When they're underwater climbing the ropes, that yeah. is like a whole animated scene. As opposed to when they come out of the water on the ropes. Which I think that is more of a composite shot where they've had this live set with the ropes and the ship. Uh-huh. And then they actually added animated skeletons climbing the ropes. That's when I think it really starts to show its age a lot. And it's very apparent when you actually try to grab a screenshot. Because we put a screenshot up yeah, with all of right. our posts. That way it has an image that goes with it. And when you try to do that, or you try to get one of a close-up, it does not work. And I actually was unable to really put something out there that could really hold up for a real close-up. Huh. It just wouldn't work. It looked, it was very dark, or you had to really play with the colors, and it just did not look good. Yeah. So in the motion, it's fine when you see it as a movie, like they expect you to see it. But if you're doing kind of a frame-by-frame or moving it along real slowly like that, you definitely see that it has not aged well. But I do think it works better under the water when it's entirely animated, I think. Uh Not... When they're actually climbing the ropes, but when they come out of the water, it, it's not quite as fluid. Oh, okay. A few other things I noticed with the skeletons, since we're on skeleton talk. In the beginning of this minute, Kohler gives us a nice underwater close-up. And when I say nice, I mean because it's a close-up. Is that it's when like, he boom. changes from... Yeah, he's changing and he kind of does that, like, an underwater growl, if you want. Yeah. He doesn't really... I can't remember now if he makes a noise, but we get a yeah. kind of a close-up that's more of his head and just right about to his sternum. You can see that the skeleton that they used for the model was <laughs> perhaps a bit of a replica, actually. Not that I expect them to go in and cover it all up, but I did notice on the ribs, at least one rib, you can see a clear connection point where the bone would connect to the costal cartilage. Oh, really? Yeah, so it looks like it was just, it'd be put together like a skeleton that you would have for anatomy class or something like that. One yeah. of these kind of plastic type skeletons. And so it just kind of looked like that because the way it was connected. Off topic, but kind of. I seen somebody driving home with one of those in the front seat of their car the tonight. Was it a pirate? 
No, <laughs> it was just a guy. <laughs> he, had a, did, he had a skeleton in his in his passenger seat. Did he have the skeleton Az- was looking out the window? The did he have window. Aztec gold with him? No, <laughs> not that I can see. <laughs> well, sometimes you don't flash the gold, so it's possible Heather may have just encountered a real cursed pirate. That's crazy. <laughs> I thought it was weird. I looked in my rearview mirror and seen the skeleton facing out the window. <laughs> Are you sure you just weren't driving and seeing things? You're like, oh, we got to get the no, show done I, and I, stuff. I, I, then when he pulled on the side with me, I checked. Let it me out ask again. what everybody else is asking out there. <laughs> How much grog did you drink while at work today? Fortunately, none. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. The other thing that I notice is with Bosun, and this is also during that Kohler scene underwater. I happened to pause it just exactly at the right moment, and you can see the work that really went into the transition from human to skeleton. At the right frame, you can see the point where they erase the human. Bosun. Uh-huh. Well, you can see where they're erasing his arm, actually, which becomes completely transparent. Oh, really? And then they begin to paint in the animation for the composite shot. And so it does this interesting disintegration technique where it's like it's dispersing into particles because of the way that they've kind of stepped the er- erasing of his skin. Right. Which actually is kind of neat. It just looked neat, except that it completely disappears. So it doesn't like go to the actual bone uh-huh. because of the obvious effect. I mean, I'm not knocking the effect. So they actually had to get rid of him and then they had to animate it. So it happens so quickly. But you see that you can see the person behind him disappear through the entire arm or the person behind him through the entire arm because of the way that they had to get rid of Boson's actually arm huh. or his actual arm. Now, this is just in a slow-mo type. This was a frame. Speed, I actually just happened to frame. pause it oh, okay. at that particular time, and I noticed it. So that's the only. It's just so it. quick you can't see it. Yeah, because it would. The flash is just only a few frames. It goes from skeleton to or human to skeleton. Yeah. But I just happened to pause it right there, and you can see the outline of Boson's normal human body, and then it's like dispersing into all these particulates, and then you can see through it completely. There's no bones or skeletons, and there you see the person behind him, and then the bone comes in because then I at that point I'm like oh cool and so I started to <laughs> move it frame by frame and you can see that it pops in all of a sudden and then covers up the background so it's not see-through anymore but well, it's kind of a neat effect. Neat. Yeah. Except that yeah technically it should have the bone there you should just kind of whittle away to the bone but what can you do? But it's so quick that in normal speed Yeah normal speed you, you didn't really see it. see it. Yeah so it's it's not visible when you would actually really see it or at least I don't think it is because it, it does happen that really kind of smooth transition which yeah. is pretty cool. But yeah, I just thought it was a interesting where I paused it that you could see how they were really doing that effect. That's really cool, it. actually. It's such an interesting, you know, computer graphics and, and art like that is so interesting. And to actually be able to see it when you're just doing that frame by frame in a movie, it's really cool. Yeah, so we talked about the special effects before. And the whole idea of what they did is they did not use a lot of motion capture in this particular film. Only a little bit here yeah. and there. So what they did is they would film sequences with actors going through it as their normal human bodies. And then they would do a machimation process and insert the skeletons in that look afterwards as an animation technique. But they did do like some of the motion capture for people walking on sand to be able to get that look right for those skeletons. Oh, okay. But that was really kind of an animation thing. So it's kind of a, a neat effect how they do that. Right. Since we're already talking behind the scenes stuff, since we kind of delved into that, in a bid to show everyone that men actually do listen to women, 
I thought this was a nice tie-in to a story you told quite a while back about the costumes for the original Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. Uh Uh-huh. Apparently, the costume designer, if I recall correctly, well, costume designer and maker, was told not to make duplicates of the outfits because there was, say, no budget. Right. But she went ahead and did it anyways and kept a backup set for herself. Needless to say, a fire broke out. I think it was a fire or something like that. And destroyed some of the costumes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they had to actually go back to her, say, hey, we're going to need you to make some more ones. How, how long is that going to take? And all this kind of stuff. And she ended up saying, I already made some other ones. Yeah. I didn't listen to them. I made some duplicates just in case for an emergency just like yeah. this. So according to Gore Verbinski, there was some doubt that Pintel and Rigetti dressed like ladies. This whole gag of yeah. them rowing was actually going to make it into the final film oh, or really? actually be filmed at all. That it was just possibly going to be cut from the script and not even show up. So that whole distraction scene was just going to disappear. Huh. He was really pushing for it and was going to make something happen anyways. He was going to just try and push it forward. But when he went to Penny Rose and she's the film's costume designer, he was told, or she told him, that Disney killed the dress order and told her not to make them. You know, they didn't want yeah. the budget. They're saying, we're not going to do this. It's not going to show in there. So maybe it was like Bruckheimer or somebody, one of the producers was like, hey, we're not going to do this. Yeah. Verbinski was just like adamant that the dresses were in the script and that he's going to need them for the shot because he wanted to go ahead and do that. Yeah. She's saying, no, Disney didn't want it. Where are they? What can we do? Because he was, the whole premise was, is that he was asking to see the dresses and she, this is when she dropped the ball on it. And after he sweated it out, she ended up telling him that she didn't listen to Disney and went ahead and made them anyways. So it's just like a full circle from what happened with the ride for this movie. And Patel and Rigetti rode happily ever after in dresses for the scene then. So thanks to (laughs) Penny for not listening to Disney. The second woman not to listen to Disney and just did her own thing with costumes and it worked out for the best. Both times. That's right. So I'm not sure what that means. It means Disney... Needs to not be telling women what to do. Women, not yeah, exactly. We also have to recognize some incredible elements in this particular minute, and it's not the special effects with the underwater skeletons that we already talking about, but sound, costuming, lighting, set and art decoration, and cinematography actually also shine in this particular minute. Not just our dear Governor Swan. We have some great work behind the scenes that come together so seamlessly to transport us to the 18th century on a ship and stir up emotions in this particular minute. So where I'm going with all this is there's all kinds of cracking and creaking bone effects that help the cursed crew come to life when they're underwater. You can hear their bones creaking and all that kind of stuff. Penny Rose does an outstanding job on the clothing, specifically Governor Swan's attire, which is like this texture-rich garb that screams he's in the upper class. Yeah. You really look at it. It's pretty cool. Barbosa's clothes of, have texture Yeah, also. there's a lot of textured yeah. fabrics and right. whatever else you would call that stuff. Kind of interesting. We've kind of moved away from most te- textures. Yeah, but there's a lot of that texture going on here, which is really nice. The cabin is also particularly a great shot with and almost like this sparsely decorated stuff. It's just adorned enough. That it doesn't feel like cluttered, but reflects Norrington's personality. So I think they did a good job of not like putting so much stuff in there. Because there's a few things. There's like a globe and some lanterns and stuff like that. When Governor Swan is talking to Elizabeth through the closed door, lighting from the cabin lights within Uh shine through the waved pane glass to give him a soft, endearing glow. That is simply perfect, I think, for the scene in his particular monologue. Right. 
When inside the cabin looking out, Governor Swan is again, he's kind of like gently masked by these wavy panes in the glass uh-huh. of the door. Again, with soft candlelight. No covers on the lit candles. Shame on you, Norrington. I must say that, though. <laughs> but as Governor Swan, he just wants a fire on board. Is that what Norrington's after? Yep. He's like, Elizabeth is here. No covers. She doesn't like any covers on candles. <laughs> they got all the open flames. But anyways, as Governor is talking with Elizabeth, the camera eases closer. It's like drawing closer to him. But still keeping him and Elizabeth separated, which I thought was a neat effect. Yeah. Just as his conversation turns from his wishes for Elizabeth, say, to Mary Norrington, that he's proud of her, to recognizing she may have different aspirations and that he would understand her choice, that's when the timing is spectacular. As he gets more intimate and caring, the camera draws closer, bringing them together. Well, maybe together. We'll have to see in the next minute. But it's that cool effect because they're far apart when he's talking about he's proud of her and Norrington, but then as he really starts to change his tune, that camera is getting closer Mm -hmm. and it's really kind of drawing us as an audience into what we would maybe think of Elizabeth and... It's it's kind of neat symbolism is what I'm going with that. So all of these come together, all of this lighting, decoration, all that stuff really come together to set an incredible mood. And as I said earlier, one in which Weatherby Swan goes from being governor to actually father. Yeah. And I think that's the nail on the head in this particular minute in his character arc. Yeah. It's really kind of a special moment for him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't really see... Well, it's it not something we would expect, I think, at this stage. No. That he would come in and have that moment. And I think that's what makes it special and endearing. So. Yeah. It's like when he's in her bedroom, they kind of, you could tell they really have a bond. Yeah. You know, when he's in her bedroom giving her the dress and stuff, you could tell they have really have a bond there. But then you you see at this moment, he's actually realizing she's a lady. She has her own decisions. She may have... Want to go a different way than what I prefer for her to go. Yeah. It's pretty special. I think it's a good transition or good evolution of his character that yeah. we get here. But I don't know if it was appropriate for this particular minute when we're trying to get back in the groove of euphemism. We're having tongue-in-cheek <laughs> moments. And then what happens at the end? Governor Swan sidles us with yeah. endearing, mood-changing feelings. How dare he? I don't know. Exactly. And since I don't have anything else, I'm actually going to have to end on Governor Swan becomes a father. That is like a stake to my heart. That's like (laughs) if I can jump to dead man's chest. That's like pulling out my heart and putting it in a chest and then someone stabbing it. It's perfect for Father's Day weekend. Okay, maybe it's good for Father's Day weekend. I didn't think of that. And so that's perfect timing. See, it's perfect for this weekend. I just really always like to end on more of a nice note, not like where people are going, yeah, Governor Swan really evolved. (laughs) Now, what good is that? Now I'm all bummed out. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with Minute 111 of The Curse of the Black Pearl on the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Until then, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. What's that, Banjo? Heather's been drinking at the Faithful Bride Tavern? Take me to her, buddy. Blimey! Passed out in the mud with the pigs? Again? This sty is your second home. Heather, wake up! The show's done and you're supposed to tell everyone where they can find us, where the after party is, and how their voicemail may be featured on the show. Banjo, get me a bucket. Hey, Scallywags, while Banjo's getting some water to wake up Heather, it's time I say thanks for listening. If you like the show, give us a review on iTunes. It helps us out and we greatly appreciate it. Have a question or comment? Give us a call at 8637 Pirate. We just might play your voicemail on the show. 
You can also give us a shout at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. And don't forget to join the post-episode brawls on Facebook and Twitter. If you're interested in our best-of clips, you can find us on SoundCloud. All the links are at blackpearlminute.com. It's that easy.